Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Medi Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Welcome to the Society for American Soccer History's SASH session with Tom Langton, who's joining us from Suffolk, England, and will present on the topic an illustrated guide to Anglo-American football history before 1850. For many of us who do early American soccer history, we know how difficult it is to come by images. But Tom has one of the definitive collections in the world, and he's a master at telling stories with that collection. Founded in 1993, SASH works to promote, facilitate, and disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the United States. You can find us on the web at ussoccerhistory.org and on social media with our Facebook and Twitter accounts. If you'd like to join the society or renew your membership, please do so via the website. Now back to Tom. Tom Langton is the son of the accomplished British sports journalist and sports art and history aficionado, Harry Langton who established the world famous FIFA Langton Collection, which is now owned by the National Football Museum Trust. Tom took over the family archive and company in 2013 and has since developed a new collection based on a range of traditional and modern themes. He uses these for exhibitions and displays. Tom is a biologist by profession and has particular interest in soccer anthropology before 1800 and in soccer fine art through the ages. Today's presentation will show evidence of ball games across America, Europe, and Asia, and reflect on the relevance to the origins of the global game. As you'll see, Tom's talk is illustrated with images from that famous collection. Please welcome Tom Langton. Thank you, uh, Tom, I hope you can hear me. I like to look at interpreting football's cultural context. And I do this, as, as you said, as a biologist um, with an interest in behavior of wild animals and, and humans and many other aspects of science that football touches on. Um, but I also look at it in terms of being a player. I played, like many of you, probably playground soccer at school for 10 years and cricket, rugby and hockey for the school and basketball for my university. So I have some practical interest and experience as a player in rules and the manner in which games are or have been played and evolve. And the, one particular area, which is sport as a proxy for dispute resolution through the years. Um, I'm also passionate about the art genres through the ages, as Tom has just mentioned, as depicted in the various media paintings oil paintings, watercolours, prints, photographs, ceramics, metalwork, and, and so on, the significant artefacts in sport kit and equipment too, which has is, which is likewise changed through and reflected the ages as they've come through. And as Tom said, um, these were things that also motivated my father um, to create the um, 
the, the FIFA Langton collection, the FIFA initially the FIFA Museum collection, but um, I've taken that forward, um, that family interest forward from my father and Harry and my mother Anne, who, who also played a large part in the company. So I see history as, as the crucial building block of knowledge, but upon which deeper understandings through science and art can also develop um, and the sociological analysis, which I think is also extremely important, uh, the development from childhood play to warfare and basically everything competitive that sits in between and that shows up in these games. Just to let you know, I will be using a few terms that may no longer be considered acceptable in relation to ethnicity, um, but only really when quoting old documents, and this doesn't endorse them as acceptable terms. Um, so just before I get stuck in, um, I'm just going to show a quick slide. Um, it's been a bit of personal introduction to this, this photograph on the left is from 30 years ago, 1992, in New York. Uh, there's my father, Harry Langton, on the right, who is based in London, England, with obviously Pele and USA soccer captain, uh, captains Tony Miola and April Heinrichs. Now, this was a press breakfast promoting the World Cup and an exhibition on the history of World Cup, world football, uh, told in the historic artefacts that... Uh, Obviously, the competition would take place in 1994. So on the right-hand side, there's Al Colon, who championed the cause of the US Soccer Hall of Fame in the early years, making a presentation to my father. I don't know, some token of appreciation or something. Um, uh, and this is when an, an exhibition of what would then become the FIFA Museum Collection uh, was held at Sotheby's in New York in July. Uh, and this was thanks to the work, the arrival of the collection in FIFA was, was due to, um, well, followed the 1990 World Cup in Italy, where it first attracted attention by several people then in 1994 stateside and in Zurich, including Clive Toy, who I know is, a, is an active member of SASH, Keith Cooper, Seth Blatter, Joe Havelange and many others beyond. Um, and just before um, you think I'm going completely crazy, I just wanted to illustrate something uh, in terms of sociology. Um, sorry, I'm just going to my notes. Sorry. Um, just as an example of the scope of my interest, um, without wanting to go too, too far back in time, one discovery in recent decades from Africa is... Um, is that chimpanzees throw rocks at trees for reasons that aren't really fully understood, um, that are considered uh, by some to be ritual in nature. Uh, obviously, some animals use tools. Um, 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 but it is hard to actually pin down what's going on here. But it, it's, it's not... Um, impossible to, um, to consider, resist the notion really that uh, successful early um, hominid juveniles and adults were playing um, um, with uh, using their spare time um, and using excess energy for play, uh, more elaborate communications. 
So a scuffed, stuffed skin or bladder ball or one made from round seed pods um, or leaves bound with vines might be something that's been going around in many forms for several million years. Uh, and from this, our sense of play and competition has evolved over a very long time. I'm going to talk about football games, including those that are kicking games, uh, with an element of handling and those with more handling that fall into a category of uh, what I'm going to call old European football games. And the aim here is not to try to summarise uh, what has been published over the last 200 years or so, and, and more recently, um, about records and observations of ball games in Native American communities and elsewhere across the Arctic, subarctic, and temperate re regions. Um, information is assembling really well. I particularly, uh, what appeals to my sense of humour is the summary by journalist Mike Roberts with his amusing style of wordplay, uh, which might be lost on, uh, on non-English um, uh, users, but in some cases. Um, but um, also the accounts by, by Smith and Bunk, um, a lot of this really great stuff is coming through now and uh, adding annually to our knowledge. So it's a really moving um, subject. Uh, and for me, it's interesting using these and many other texts to see how individuals, societies and governments have used football through time to achieve um, their needs and ambitions. Um, and of course, everything around the making of art in and around aspects of, of the football games. Um, we, we consider the, the route into uh, North America uh, historically um, the expansion of Inuit people from, from Northeast Asia into Arctic and subarctic North America and to Greenland over the last thousand years. Um, but going back, um, the information that... that uh, seems to be most accepted is that colonization of the Americas by pre-Clovis and Clovis people around 20,000 years ago was likely mainly via Beringia along the coastline. And these would have come with their own traditions and these would have adapted to local conditions too. The Inuits came from northern Siberia and Mongolia. So really quite close to the nation with the earliest records of both simple and more involved football games in China. So there's an element of, of likely anthropomorphic and cultural linkage uh, going back 20,000 years, which isn't actually that very long at all. Nomadic groups from Siberia may well have continued the ball games of Northeast Asia, and, and these may relate to those recorded by European explorers a few hundred years ago. Now, this is just a very quick diversion um, and aside, really. Some of you may have seen the FIFA Museum online webinar on Su Chu and Kamari last week with Yang Wen Zheng from Manchester University. And if you go to the FIFA Museum website, you can see further webinars in the future months where there's a free registration on other forms of ancient ball games. So I just thought I'd throw that in because I did enjoy it. And I, I think if you haven't caught on to that, then I don't know if it's going to be online, whether they're going to put them online, but the first one was very enjoyable. Coming from the south, if you like, north, influence coming from the south into Texas 
uh, Arizona, New Mexico, I think, from the tropical places where rubber is grown. And you had this amazing bouncing ball that you hit with your hips, apparently, um, largely. Um, <clears throat> um, with the elaborate purpose-made courtyards that I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, ranging from Mexico to El Salvador. And these balls have been found dating back, carbon dated back to 1600 BC with ornamental figurines of players uh, dating back to 1200 BC. And now I think over 1500 ball courts identified um, to date. So clearly an extremely uh, important and persistent game of, those, of, the, of, that, of, that, of that era from 1600 BC through to um, more recent millennia. So North American movements, Eastern European movements, West, um, people from Scandinavia, Sweden, Norway, um, Denmark, Ireland, Scotland, colonised Iceland. Um, it's kind of near the halfway mark, if you like, between North America and the European continent. Started around 800 BC, um, possibly as a result of fishing trips gone wrong, but um, the distance not be, being relatively short compared with the thousands of kilometres from New, New, Newfoundland across to Scotland. And there's points. <coughs> and evidence of Newfoundlanders reaching Greenland and Viking Scandinavia's reaching Newfoundland around a thousand years ago seem, seem well established. So there's a definite potential for some cultural exchange influencing ball games in both directions. Um, the illustration here um, is an engraving titled uh, Game of Ball Amongst the Ex Eskimo. Uh, we now say Inuit of Greenland by uh, Hans Agede in 1741. Uh, and he, he says... Playing ball is their most usual game, especially by moonlight. They have two ways of playing. And you can see one of them, they're kind of throwing the ball between themselves. And another one, there's a bit of kicking going on. When they have, This doesn't really give us much of a clue, other than there seem to be uh, two teams, seem to be men and women to me. Um, but I can't imagine that a contact sport in, this, in the frozen waste is going to be such a good idea. Um, for me, this looks like a, a low or no contact game of handball, sort of, or keepy uppy, if you like, um, uh, with people dressed carefully um, and playing in a sort of ceremonial manner, perhaps, with similar to the early games in China and Japan. So I just wonder if this isn't actually a sign of, of, of football, if you like, coming east rather than, than west. Um, so now, no doubt there will be some um, further findings regarding ancient colonization. Um, and so from the last 800 years or so, post and the post-medieval period, there are more collated insights into early descriptions and clues regarding games played in North America before and during European colonization. And again, Brian Buck, Bunk's book does a really great job on this. Um, uh, games in Virginia and elsewhere describing a low or no contact kicking game 
where ball skittles seem to be at a premium alongside other variations, uh, no doubt. But they were well established. They seem to be well established prior to European invasion. Uh, European uh, yeah, invasion, I guess, is the word. <laughs> Obviously, there's an 1856 record of football between an English expedition looking for the Northwest Passage game with the Inuit on Greenland, which looks like a few rules handling kicking game. So some European influence may have reached at least Greenland possibly a thousand years ago. Kicking games were played by North, uh, native North Americans as a part of traditional and cultural celebration, sometimes associated with festivities and gambling. And these are being described in the early 1600s. The illustration here is, is a hand-coloured lithographic book plate from George Catlin's Manners, Customs and Condition of the North American Indians. It shows in 1841, Native American Sioux or Dakota women playing a sort of mob ball game uh, with sticks. The sticks, uh, presumably uh, there is a ball somewhere in the, in the crowd. Um, I, I think the sticks may not actually be to beat anything, and it may be that the sticks must be held to stop the use of hands. There's a reference to this in Old English football of the players being given batons to hold so they can't, um, can't make it too violent. Although I guess these sticks might easily poke an eye out. But um, I'd be interested if anyone has any further insights on this. It may well be that, that this is actually known. So if anybody knows that, please tell me. Um, in terms of um, European influence on ball games, especially in the North S Northeast um, USA region, um, with colonization and population growth. I'm going to turn to a few English characters who were football players in the 1600s, one of whom came to New England, uh, namely on the left here, Oliver Cromwell, who took part in the English Civil War, and John Wheelwright, who's a controversial Puritan clergyman, who by the sound of it liked a good hack. So this is a quote from a meeting of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1894 at the executive mansion in Washington. Um, <coughs> as you can see, the Reverend John Wheelwright, son of a well-to-do Lincolnshire yeoman, was graduated in 1614 at Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge. Some memory of his, Cambridge, Cambridge is, uh, is a short way north of London. Some memory of his prowess in college athletics held to a later time uh, for Colin Mather writes that when Wheelwright was a young spark at the university, he was noted for more than ordinary stroke at wrestling. So he's good at wrestling. And afterwards, waiting on Cromwell, probably um, they had a system whereby they, uh, the junior would look after the senior pupil, with whom he had been contemporary at the university. Cromwell declared to the gentleman then about him that he could remember the time when he had been more afraid of meeting Wheelwright at the football than of meeting any army since in the field. Well, when it came to uh, fighting, Cromwell was, was um, ferocious. And so that's actually quite a, quite a, a strong testament. And it, it appears that, um, that Wheel, Wheelwright, who spent at least three years, I think, in, in the US, founded Exeter in New Hampshire, um, was keen on the game. And uh, you just have to wonder, did he have any influence while he was over there in the 1630s, founded a town, he might have founded um, some games. 
Um, I'm, not, I'm just going to say a little bit um, about um, um, uh, let me just go back a bit. Um, I think one of the points here is that football, English football here, is clearly um, a kind of a game that, that, that gets better described in the 1700s, where there's a real risk of injury. But probably pre-agreed levels of violence according to whether, for example, shoes were worn, whether the game was between friends or adversaries. And um, as I said, Wheelwright went to, to sail to the States, um, in 1636, he lived in Boston and then moved north to establish Exeter in the province of New Hampshire. So, um, yeah. Um, so in my, in my, just moving forward, in my own research on early European football, I made a new friend and colleague in, in recent years, the academic historian David Dimmond from, from Barry St. Edmunds, who sadly died last year, having completed this paper, the game of camping in East Anglia. Um, David was an ecclesiastical specialist and had worked out the relationships between churches, land in church ownership, and inns, the places for drink, drinking and resting overnight, in English towns and villages, using his abilities to search and translate with the help of a, a, of a network of people who, who are around him. Many of the ancient documents giving clues about football games. And this is... Um, this is uh, uh, Latin extract from the Assizes or the court records from the 1300s, going back to even the 1300s, uh, Suffolk's earliest camping match. Now, camping was the old term in East Anglia for football. And Holsley is a place not far from me. Four men are actually listed here as being fined for drawing blood during camping match. So, um, again, the idea that football is, has a degree of... Um, high contact, physicality, and bloodletting is quite clear in England um, 900 years ago. Um, David's intensive research um, in two and in parts of another, uh, in two counties and parts of another two counties, um, not only show how closely football or camping was associated with rural life, but was also associated with a boom time in the 1450s when economic conditions improved in East Anglia and recreational time was more viable. Um, and just to give, I'll, I'll come on to show you where East Anglia is, but we're now looking at the 1700s. Okay, so the period when um, sailboats were going regularly now to North America. Um, there, are, there are very frequent mentions in newspaper notices and accounts in the 1700s when, when newspapers really started in, in the UK and I think in North America. Um, when you, when you, when you um, actually go back to the old maps, you can see that camping grounds, what they call camping grounds, um, are part of the church estate, <coughs> often, if not always. Uh, within touching distance of the church grounds, and part of that initial setup, um, and um, this is this is really David's dis major discovery. One a part, a large part of, of David's major discovery 
East Anglia, you can see the area in red here, um, is not only a very ancient part of England where the Romans and the Anglo-Saxons first arrived, but um, a lot of Roman towns, it uh, goes back uh, extensive Roman occupation. And again here, the Camping Close on this map, um, again, it's a 19th century map, it's close to the church grounds. These were used for archery practice, uh, which was the main warfare um, instrument, um, in addition to siege catapults and the like, as well as things like theatre and education, small markets. And this is a time when churches were really more community centre as a religious focus. You know, the, the churches, there was a boom in East Anglia in the, in the uh, 15th century. Effectively, the Silicon Valley of, of, um, of England, based on um, the wool trade, selling dyed cloth to the continental Europe. There's a, a large amount of, of business to be made and the, the wool trade and the cloth manufacturing dyeing with special dyes and export to Europe made this region extremely wealthy. <coughs> so this gives you an idea of location. So you've got the counties of Norfolk or Norfolk and Suffolk. Cambridgeshire, which is, if you look at Ely, Cambridge must be somewhere near the D of Devil's Dyke, then London's below. So, uh, and Essex here, uh, they're all in, in touching distance of London. Um, and so this was a, a, a centre of population density uh, due to the, proxim the proximity to mainland Europe. It's also familiar to many people from the US because this is the area um, where US personnel were based in World War II, saturated with airfields used for the campaign in Europe, by the way. Newspapers from the 1700s are being digitised, uh, and importantly now they're getting word search. And you probably know this, but um, certainly over here we haven't had word search um, until quite recently. So there's a new opportunity to look much deeper um, and also to, to move in on translation of church records from Latin because many of the old records <clears throat> from churches are in Latin, so they need um, translation. Um, and this is just, this is a dot map of places where football matches were recorded across East Anglia in, from the newspapers um, of, and, and there was something like 100 by 1800. Um, and just the first few in 17, in seven, by 1710, there was a handful. It grew steadily across the century. Um, and you can see that football is widely, camping and football is widely dispersed across uh, the major towns and villages. It's, it's, it's the game, if you like. Um, so just a quick summary. Um, late medieval churches are built on sacred sites with supporting land. Original churches held a community cohesion role, which included football. The land was used for a range of activities, markets, meetings, school, theatre, archery and football. Over time, these seems to have expanded and relocated further away from churches, um, because I think as populations grew, the rowdier activities were pushed away. Churches also became more religious as the centuries rolled forward. Uh, so 1540, East Anglia had the highest density of churches. It's called um, Seely Suffolk or Holy Land, rich from the cloth trade. And also recreation grounds, once the land moved away from the churches, were often owned by publicans and innkeepers who seemed to have a strong role in organising the games, probably because uh, people travel to play football and they, can, they get thirsty. Um, 
So in some senses, in, by the 1700s, football was both working class, um, middle class, and, and there's also, there also evidence of wealthier men um, supporting games. This, this guy here is in a Trades FC shirt. This is actually late Victorian, but I just used it um, because it's quite clear from these newspaper accounts that uh, football games between, for example, bakers and shoemakers were being organised by guilds um, and um, they weren't just scraps um, from local lads having a game. Um, what kind of game was being played? And I think this is where it gets quite interesting um, from what's now called Italy, Antonio Scano's account of football in, um, in I'll say, what's now called Italy. Um, is is almost exactly this has been said before, so it's not really new. But on second, my my I've done a really detailed scrutiny of this and, and kicking camp, <coughs> um, which is the the sort of low contact version, and savage camp, which is the full on you might get killed version, are very very analogous to um, Scania's account of of Calcio in in uh, Italy. And if you look at the accounts of Moore and Formby from the early 1800s, looking back, they are derived from the 1700 newspapers. And you can you can speculate as, as to whether it's a different game or the same game. I can't I can't find a difference. They they all have the same elements, and it just makes you think that um, back in those those days um, there was a there was definitely a lot of contact between uh, across the continent, pilgrims moving, thousands of pilgrims moving every year to England from the continental Europe. Um, but it's a precursor to kicking and handling games, in other words, the rugby football games. Um, and, and it falls, this is my behaviourist coming out, it's a gradational spectrum according to sporting injury etiquette. And I think this goes for wherever you are in the world. You have the, at the one end, the kicking only or the mainly low, no contact games. The sort of middle kicking and handling passing with a degree of contact that might get you slightly hurt or hurt. And then there's the extreme end of savage or fight football, uh, where, foot, where injury and death is, is actually uh, part of it. Um, and I'll come on to why I think this is important. Um, sorry. Um, I've done a little bit of a look at when the universities or when these aggregations of, of mostly men, entirely men uh, started, and it goes back to Bologna in Italy in, in um, 2088. So major universities and schools in Europe, there's a, there's a couple, there's actually a university in Cairo and Hunan in China, I think, set up in the 900s, but about a thousand years ago, um, universities seem to be predominantly in Scotland, and schools, which were effectively universities, and that, um, Scotland seems to be a made a centre for uh, universities. Um, Cambridge, obviously, that's interesting. Paris, but Italy, one, two, three, four, four Italian uh, universities established between um, ten thousand and eighty-eight and twelve, um, uh, twelve forty. So. Again, there's a strong link between Italy and the UK or Scotland. And I think that's interesting for a, for a game that looks the same. Uh, it's quite likely that 
intellectual or students moved between these um, universities. And again, I think there's scope there for, for deep deep dive into some of the archives, uh, probably written in Latin, um, uh, to see if there's any clues there. So um, quickly, because I, I can see we're running out of time, um, I'm going to ask a question um, before I get back to the subject of the talk. Um, do we need a reappraisal of folk football? Um, certainly this idea that football was kind of folky and varied everywhere and there's no real cohesion is wrong, in my view. Uh, in the 1700s, you had village and town teams traveling away from home. You had inter-county matches. Uh, it was played throughout the year, not just on holidays. There were marked pitches. It was highly organized with grandstands, referees, linesmen. It was commercial relating to the hospitality industry. It, it wasn't something that came later in the late, mid, uh, mid to late 1800s. Um, the publicans and innkeepers were sponsoring football and organizing football matches to sell uh, drink, food, and accommodation. There were side events and gambling. Um, and I think if you if you if you go away from the newspapers and go back into the the broadsheets that came before in the 1600s, translated some of those, I think you might find this tradition of of sponsored games possibly goes back into the um, 1600s. It's it's relatively unchecked, and I think it it'd be worth double checking if it's been checked in the USA. Um, um, uh, and the evidence for 1700s, I think, you know, I don't know how extensively and thoroughly the, the newspapers have been sifted, but that would be a recommendation for further research from me. Um, football really, to my mind, joins boxing, horse racing and cricket um, in England as early organised sports in the 1700s. Um, almost unquestionably organised by trade interests, as I said. Players were paid. It, they were professionals, some of them. Cash, silver-laced hats and gloves for winners. It was a real prestige thing to turn out as a player and walk around as a victor in a, in a, in a silver-laced hat um, or with, with a, uh, a wad of cash. And as I said, I think football was everybody's in the 1700s. There's always these baits, sterile debates about whether it's an elite or a, um, a working-class sport, but... I think it's everybody's from what I can see, at least in the 1700s. So just quickly now, um, back to sticks um, uh, and, and back to old Italy, if you like, Venice, the Guerre di Cane, or War with Sticks. These were really brutal games where people would murder each other, fighting their way across a bridge. Uh, they weren't supposed to, but um, it began really early in the, in the 1300s and lasted till the 1500s um, when sticks were banned and hands only. The trouble with the stick game is that people had knives too. Um, they were uh, horrific spectacles if you read the old accounts. But they were, where, they were primitive ways of settling scores and probably better than uh, raiding each other's village to slaughter everybody. Um, this was some kind of normalised um, contact um, um, coordinated by the elite, no doubt. Um, and again, um, talking of, of, of brutality and wars, uh, getting back to America, um, army recruitment. I, I picked out this record from one of the newspapers from January 1771, which is Hyde Park in London, where I think Tom, Tom's based. 
Um, and it says, yesterday, while a number of fellows were playing at football in Hyde Park, a press gang was sent for sent for who secured 17 of them. So football players were being press ganged into the army um, and sent abroad. Some of them would have gone west. Some of them would have gone east, um, perhaps to the American wars. You can see how, uh, again, games, um, the, the awareness and uh, experience of football games could quite easily have gone across um, in the 1770s, um, if not before. Um, transatlantic sailing around then was something like 20 days out of 40 return. It was a, not, a, not a great a journey, but nevertheless happening uh, on a regular basis, uh, probably um, once a month or something like that. And packet ship service with post was two a month from 1817. So the ability for the um, English soldier um, and European soldiers to, to, to take ball games across um, in the 18th century was, is, is quite clear. Um, Michael Oriad's book on the art of football is one of my favorites. It's a really great uh, publication and um, uh, really speaks volumes in terms of the ancestry of, of the games. Um, but I see in these pictures by Winslow Homer and um, the one in Maryland, I see basically a, a fight game. Um, uh, it's a, it's a full-on contact game with allowed violence. I just wonder if this is, uh, obviously this is 1860s, I just wonder if this isn't a tradition of fight football brought across from Europe um, and ingrained into the uh, U.S. men of the time. I'm sure that I'm sure that that could be, if it's true, it could be found through with a bit more digging and a bit more um, investigations. And shoot me down if 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 you already know. Um, and of course, this is all well before uh, Lord Kinnard, who's the, who seems to be the doyen of early British soccer. Um, who came to the States as an 18-year-old in 1865, while well, the steamships were then crossing the, uh, from Liverpool to Quebec in 12 days. Um, and he did, a, I guess, a rail trip from Niagara through Chicago, Cincinnati and St. Louis. They were obviously privileged, wealthy men with fortunes amassed by their parents and grandparents based on slavery and other forms of wicked abuse from the British Empire, no doubt. Um, so... Um, by then, obviously, the story is better known as um, uh, fully accounted for um, in some of the publications that are mentioned in others. So again, conclusion here, <clears throat> I think there's a compelling notion that fair play uh, existed in Native American football games and it predates the European influence. I think the British European colonists influenced American football games from the 1600s if not earlier, introducing games with ranges of physicality. And that a deeper dive into the 1600s and 1700s in the UK and the USA could reveal uh, further detail of use to us. Uh, thank you very much. Wonderful, Tom. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, a lot to digest. Uh, and I immediately want to throw it out to folks on the call for uh, questions, comments. Um, we can use your hand or you can just chime in. We're a medium-sized group here. 
Tom, thank you. That was absolutely fantastic. Really great overview and summary of uh, and and provocation and new stuff for I know uh, some of us are getting more and more obsessed as we take deeper and deeper and deeper dives uh, in, in, into to this stuff. Um, one very practical question. Um, are you aware of any um, database for the Latin manuscripts that you think deserve that kind of search? And I'm guessing, you know, just a search with, you know, uh, the word ludus and its cognates may really uh, turn up a nice little catalog which to sift from. I'd always, you know, when I was a, a grad student, I learned, you know, from Poitzinga at Dahlia that uh, um, it's really difficult uh, looking back because what little we have are from the church documents. We don't know if they're talking about uh, ball games or if they're talking about uh, theatrical performances or what have you. Um, the idea of kind of situating that on the camping grounds uh, just sounds absolutely really rich in terms of kind of maybe not being so secure in that ignorance. So is there a, is there a database to start that type of work of maybe a, a recategorization? And second of all, um, I'm sure you're aware of the, the work of Hugh Hornby who passed away last year. Um, we had kind of a, an ongoing friendly debate over the origins of football into, into uh, Britain. Um, where I kind of was arguing more for the Roman influence, and he sees more of a, a, a post a post ten sixty six influence. I love um, the way you almost went Paleolithic with this, and uh, um, wondered if you had any thoughts in terms of you know maybe Hornby's work really focuses on the idea of festival football, but what you're talking about seems to me more like what Jed O'Brien's doing a lot of uncovering in terms of uh, um, games that would have been played on, on, uh, uh, on the commons or on a green um, that maybe uh, it aren't only reserved for festival days, but maybe we're, we're part of the everyday life. Um, and then the diaspora and the, and the indeed very transatlantic lives that people were living in the 18th century. So um, those, those are my two questions then. So Okay. Um, is that database there, and, and and two, your thoughts on on either Roman influence or or later Norman influence? Okay. Um, well, first question on database. It's really unfortunate because I got to know David Dimond two years ago, and already he wasn't well, <clears throat> and it was a real effort to, to 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 work with him to get the paper published. Uh, and and he was so unsteady. I didn't. We had to keep it to absolute essentials, and I didn't really um, wasn't able to to quiz him on what was next. We were so busy dealing with what with the manuscript to, to get it done. Um, I I don't. The answer is I don't really know. I think I think it wouldn't probably be that difficult to find out. I think it would probably take some work, but um, certainly. I mean, obviously, um, if you go to every church, they will have church records, and they may be in a big crusty book that's stuck on a shelf or in a local museum or library. Um, so a lot of it will be hard to get at, and it's probably not scanned. So, uh, but equally, if you go to some of these big libraries now, you may be amazed about what they've got through scanning. So it's probably a question of going to Cambridge, obviously, is an obvious um, one to go to. 
Cambridge universities have massive libraries you could go through there. Um, um, North America, I don't know where the church records are kept, but they could be anywhere, I guess, too. Probably, but I'm just aware that so much is being scanned these days, it might be worth doing a project, initial scoping project, just to look at the availability and maybe even to fund, because it's not that expensive. Scanning and translation, well, translation is more expensive, but um, you can find volunteers who do it. And actually, the way David caught onto this was to ask his friends who were going through manuscripts to tell him every time they saw the word camping. And that's where it all came from. It was, it was a fluke. He just asked them one day, can you keep a note as they go through for other purposes? And he started to get this flurry of records and, and, and then looked into it. So that's that's on availability. I think it's all there for the taking, but it, it might take a research program to get at it. Um, secondly, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think they mutually exclusive. The um, obviously the Norman invasion brought um, was just a little bit, just a, a later wave than the um, than the Roman invasion, and. Um, I go to some of these big Roman amphitheatres in Britain and I just look at them and actually the kids play football in them. And you just think, <laughs> I, wonder if they, I wonder if they played football in these amphitheatres. And again, I'm sure in in, uh, in Italy, some museum somewhere, they'll they'll have Latin description of maybe of, of people playing, you know, do, 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 did Romans play football in amphitheatres when there wasn't a massacre on, you know? <laughs> Um, I'm sure those big amphitheaters were used for other purposes than just killing things. I don't know, but it's one of those avenues that I've always wanted to go down and haven't really had time beyond a sort of casual thought. Um, yes, these games were obviously festival related when people were expected to work all the time. Um, but I think the trades thing has been has been underestimated. And, and uh, obviously the way that the, the situations in which men get... Um, get stuck together for long periods of time, principally the military, um, but also schools and also uh, the workplace. And as, and as work becomes more mechanised, um, you see references to trade guilds playing football, again, right back into the early parts of, of uh, the last millennium. So I think, I think there's, an, there's an element of football being coordinated by the people who bring together loads of blokes, um, and, and they need to have that outlet of energy and um, recreation that fulfills a basic need to let off steam and uh, be a little bit competitive. So um, I don't think that ne there's necessarily a clash there. I just think what we're probably trying to do here is bring a bit more clarity to it. Um, does that answer? Yeah, very much. And I, I think, it, you know, the, the, the theory of the trade is really kind of aligns really well with what we know about uh, medieval drama as well, right? Uh, the trade guilds and their sponsorships of plays. So again, this larger notion of the, of the ludus or the, or the, you know, a time of play. Um, yeah, it just, it just makes sense, right? So maybe where, the, where there was what we would consider theater, there were also ball games and that uh, uh, people just would have expected that and wouldn't even have felt the compulsion to take note of it unless in the case of the church, they felt the need to prohibit those forms of play. One of the things I've noticed in, in England is there's a tendency for football games to be held on festivity periods in the 19th century with people dressed in fancy costume. 
And the fancy costume is often the early um, pantomime characters of old Italy. It's interesting that ch the, 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 the church link as well is really interesting because churches were social centers um, before around the 1400s when they became more strictly religious. And I, I just wonder if the theater element has, has pervaded all the way through so that these, so that these um, games when it's okay for people to, for, for men to dress up in women's clothing um, and, and, to, and to become these pantomime characters. I just wonder if it isn't really ancient. And um, I've got a collection of about 20 Victorian photographs of these various games. They seem to be in rural villages and all over. And I did a little bit of investigation into theater, the early ranges of theater. And these costumes go just straight back to old Italy. So there's, there's a bit of research there for somebody. Evan Talek Marston, Neuchâtel. Thanks, Tom. Uh, very, very much enjoyed uh, the lovely photographs. There's some incredible images. Um, my question, Tom, is really specific to the sources on some of those pictures and um, the some of the the images that I I was trying to see it on the screen. It was a it's a little bit small, so I, I wasn't sure. But um, particularly the Native American photograph, which is um, of the sticks game, uh, it seems to me. I don't think I, I don't think I heard you mention this, but it seemed to me that there were women. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. Am I, am I right? Yes. Okay. Because yeah. um, that 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 was, I just found that the illustration really fascinating. Um, so it's, it's a really good image, and actually, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you can see you can see what I presume is alcohol down at the bottom right, <laughs> um, and yeah. then there's this you know gathering to the left with sticks and what is clearly it looks to me mainly women with the sticks actually. Um, it looks like the men are watching women with sticks, which was interesting. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. It's a, it's a women's game. Oh. They've got they've got sticks. They've obviously the men are enjoying it hugely by the look of things. There's a few women with young babies, not yeah. Playing. And just out of curiosity, on the source of this image, where does this one come from? Sorry, I think I said. Um, and if I missed, I'm sorry if I missed it. Then I just I just refer to it because I'm a bit fuzzy headed because I'm in the middle of a COVID uh, outbreak, so I'm feeling a bit crazy. Yeah, so this is uh, 1841. That's right, Native American Sioux or Dakota women. This is from, it's a book plate from George Catlin, C-A-T-L-I-N, Manners, Customs and Condition of the North American Indians. You can actually pick this uh, book plate up on eBay um, quite cheaply still. Uh, it's not a particularly desired thing, which is, I think I have a couple because I think it's so interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you can, if you're interested, you can still get these. Uh, not too many dollars. So uh, thanks, Tom. Fairly early, 1841. So 1841. And the second, the second image, which was the one of the Meso, I think it precedes this, maybe, which is the Mesoamerican one. Um, yeah, the one that one. I was trying. I couldn't make out the writing on the right. Is that is that German? Is it possible? Uh, and I was curious to the source of that as well. Yeah, I can probably send that to you. I, I, I said I've got mushy brain from my sure, no stress. COVID. I, I came went down with COVID yesterday. I spent yesterday and today in bed, so I kind of thought I can't cancel on you. So um, thanks for for being here. Then I can I can I can get that for you. I'll make a note to to get that out to Tom and distribute that. Um, if, if, 
if, if that would be helpful. How about one final question? I'm going to just make a comment. We often teach, you know, the global history of soccer and, and we start with this period, right? These various ball games from around the globe and, and some of what you have here is clearly making connections um, uh, across time and across, you know, vast expanses and, and suggesting some, some real connectivity, which is really fascinating. You know, I think you're establishing some of those links and asking questions at the same time, right? It must have happened. There must have been, you know, people with knowledge of these games coming across the Atlantic, you know, into, you know, colonial America. So, and then with those questions saying, we need more research. So I, that's really what I, I think is really valuable from today. Some, you know, early Americanists um, who might say, let's look into those connections. So, I mean, it, it's a, a comment and, and, you know, gratitude for, for either people here or people here that will talk to someone else or somebody that will see our video in the future. So I, I think that's, that's wonderful. Um, I'm looking to see if there are any other questions. Uh, I know Brian, our early Americanist, is on the call. Any comments or, or questions before we wrap up? Yeah, I hope I didn't offend Brian. No, no. I mean, I appreciated your, your presentation and uh, your kind words about my book. So I only, my only, I guess my only comment might be that I think I haven't looked at it in a while, but Nancy Struna's book talks about uh, early sports in sort of the 15th, 16th century. And I think she finds that maybe the conditions of only early colonialism maybe didn't necessarily leave as much time for those sorts of games that might've been played in, in England, but I'm not sure. I didn't, I never did a search for camping or any kind of uh, terms related to that. So it's possible that they're there. I just I noticed, and it's, it's not a criticism, but but that might be right. But that the shortest section in your book is the is the bit is those centuries, and I'm just thinking, yeah. um, is that real or is it just a reflection of the access to the information? And I'd be really excited if it if it was as we've just discovered in England that it's you just need you know need to read it in the newspapers. It, you couldn't make right. it up. I mean, you know, it's, you know, where do you want the information on old football? Go and look in the newspapers. And, of course, you couldn't. While they were unscanned documents in some flatbed drawer in a library, they just weren't accessible. But scanned with a word search, suddenly they're there. It's yeah. just like a revelation. Well, and, and looking for the correct terms. I mean, I, I did search some of the databases that we have, um, you know, some of the materials that, like, the American Antiquarian Society um, you know, but the, but I, again, I wasn't searching for terms like camping or campgrounds and those sorts of things. So you're right. As things become more digitized and maybe new terminology, um, you know, becomes more, more common then yeah, those searches certainly might turn up something that, that I missed or that, you know, Struna missed in, in her research as well. So it's really interesting possibilities. I'd be really interested to, to, to uh, to talk more about this, whether you, I don't know whether you've got any conferences or I, one of the things I'd like to do is to bring an exhibition over to the States um, next year's, especially in the run up to the World Cup, maybe. 
Um, but uh, there's a lot of, of stuff which I've collected. Um, it was part of my father's estate, but also I've, I've been working on since that help add to this. And mm -hmm. um, so I'd be really interested in, in uh, any ideas or uh, synergy that that could create with, with Sash or any, any of uh, you people uh, watching, because I think it's a, it's a subject that deserves research money, um, particularly with the, with the increasing popularity of, of, of all football games, I suppose. Um, and, and the increased um, use of them by protesters and people to grab people's attention. And, and I think we, I think an under, better understanding of the, of the sociology of them could, could, could be very helpful from a society point of view, whether it's taking the knee or, um, you know, the relationship between mob games and football violence and hooliganism, all these things um, back to the, you know, ritual nature and the, the church relationships. It, it, it seems to pervade and invade every aspect of society. And I think uh, society should probably have a greater look at sport, really. Um, that probably is something that, that you would all agree with. But, um, yeah, I think there's an opportunity. I think, the, I think the, the, the capacity, I don't know how easy it is to get research funding for, for this kind of thing in the States. Over here, it's really difficult. It's hard this side of the pond too. So, uh, but I, I, I think that's a you know wonderful summary. You know the importance of sport, uh, additional inquiry. You know, some uh, you know 21st century you know transatlantic uh, you know movement of your collection and an exhibit. You know, some of us are affiliated with universities. So let's keep that in mind as as we you know look towards 2026. But thank you again.